Well, it's good to be with you this morning. We sure are missing our friends in Peru. Uh, I don't have Facebook. I never will have Facebook, but uh, my wife always shares with me. <laughs> She's not on Facebook right now either, but somehow I receive pictures of people holding pythons. So this morning we prayed for our friend's safety in Peru. Uh, we hope that we hope they come back alive. Uh, they're a little crazy, but anyway, we're missing them this morning. So we are beginning, uh, we're continuing our series, Prepare. Um, we believe that over the last few stories that we've looked at, uh, in this story, in this uh, series of Prepare, there's kind of this theme of uh, where judgment and grace collide. And so as we've looked and we looked at the life of Jesus, Jesus has some harsh words for the people of his day. These words come off very harsh to us as well. But we have to understand that this judgment is not about the judgment of the law, but rather it's a foundation of love. And so uh, we prepare ourselves for this grand cosmic event where judgment and grace collide in and through Jesus. So, so Lent is really a time for us where we, we learn to recognize the judgment we deserve while experiencing His grace that meets us where we are. And so over the last two weeks, uh, if you'll go back with me real quick, we, we discovered this. The first week, we journeyed with Jesus in the wilderness. And we said this, to experience the fullness of God's grace, we must learn to endure the test. And so we talked about that, that part of, of our faith journey, we will find wilderness times. But we said that we have to prepare ourselves for those times. And so we said that during Lent, we participate and three specific practices. We talked about fasting, we talked about giving, and we talked about prayer. Now, I don't have time to go over those, but you can download our podcast or go online and watch those sermons over again to figure out why we do those three things. Last week, we looked at the life of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were always trying to trick Jesus. The, the, the Pharisees were dangerous in the sense that they loved to, to, to they were kind of falling in love with Jesus. We have to say this, that fa- falling in love and being in love are two different things. And we said that, the, that, that it's one thing to fall in love with Jesus. It's another thing to fear and follow him. But falling in love with him is totally different. And the Pharisees kind of fell in love with Jesus. They loved all the things that he was doing. They loved the salvation aspects of Jesus. But they weren't necessarily ready to follow and fear him. And so we said that, that follow and fearing is an active response to God's will. And so this morning we continue with the third part of our series. Uh, as I began looking through this week's message and I was looking at the text, I was reminded this week of, of when Carter, we had our, our first ultrasound. Is that what the ultrasound of Carter? Now, here's a side note. Technicians drive me nuts. I love them because they're extremely smart, they're knowledgeable, and, and, and they're just great at what they do. But here's what bugs me about technicians. They know, and you know, that they know something that you don't know. Y'all ever experience this? You go and you, you have some kind of test done and you ask them, you're like, hey, can you tell me what's going on? And they're like, yeah, I know what's going on, but I can't tell you. The thing is, is they're as knowledgeable as a doctor, but they can't tell you because they're not a doctor. And so I remember as, as the lady began to press on Janelle's belly with the magic wand and our little boy came up on the screen, uh, I, I noticed that her face was sort of concerned. And so I said, ma'am, you know, is there, is, there an, is there a problem? And she said, well, um, I'll have a doctor get a hold of you and you have a consultation with a doctor. <laughs> it's not what you want to hear when you're, you're looking at your kid and, you know, you're really excited about the ultrasound and stuff. 
So we had this consultation with the doctor, and I remember, I remember sitting down, and the doctor pulled up some pictures, and he showed us pic- pictures of Carter's brain. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but, but, but your boy's brain is not developing as it should be. There, there's kind of a hole in his brain. And I remember him talking about, this is interesting, he said at this point, he said, now you have the option, you can continue with the pregnancy, or you can abort your baby. Which, of course, we're like, hello, come on, get real. And, and, but the problem is this, is that, that there, was, there was great concern that Carter wouldn't develop cognitively. Or maybe there would be some physical issues, and so we might have a child with physical needs. Now, my family's privy to this in the sense that I had a sister who, was, who had Down syndrome. She lived for nine months, uh, got a terrible heart disease, and she passed away when she was little. But our family kind of has a, a heart for special needs children and, and people. And, and so there was this concern, though, that, that the rest of her life would change in some way. That, that my son, it would be possible that I would be taking care of my son for the rest of my life or his life. And so I remember we got in the car, and of course we're both in tears at this minute, that our little precious baby, there could be something wrong. And I remember we kind of we kind of begin to work through it, we begin to process, but at the end we all ask the same question that everybody else asked. Why? Why would this happen to us? I mean, we're both healthy people, we both take care of our bodies, you know. We're, we're trying to rationalize it. So my guess is if I were to talk with you a little bit, my guess is some of you have had those experiences. You know, why does my loved one have cancer? Why did I lose my job when I met the industry standards, right? Why do people fly planes into towers with thousands of other people in them? Why do people go hungry across the world? Which I've often wondered if people who are going hungry ask the question, why do they eat so much? Why can't they just share a little bit? <laughs> I guess I'm the only one that ever thinks about that. Um, I think about Hurricane Katrina, right? Why would it hit New Orleans instead of Georgia? These are all questions that we begin to ask why. But we never end with just the question, why? But we begin to ask, why would God, right? How many of you have had somebody say, why would a loving God do dot, 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 right? These are the questions that, that we ask. Because in our humanity, we want logic. We want reasoning. We want to be God. We want to know why God would do such things. Now, that's a whole different the- theological topic. But, but we want to know these things and why they happen and and that's what Luke wants to tell us this morning. At the foundation of this story is this question of why Jesus. And it's interesting. And so we'll cover what we always cover with Luke. And, 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 and I do this because some of you are new to the faith, you're new to the church, and you haven't been in the series. But So I talk about the author real quick. Luke was a doctor who began, to, he went around and collected stories about the life of Jesus. There were some false stories and teachings about the life of Jesus. And Luke wanted to set those stories straight. And so he wrote his own personal account. He discovered Jesus on his own and wrote his own personal account of the life of Jesus, which is the most detailed account that we get. So he writes with pinpoint accuracy. And then we talked about he's writing to a Roman official, but it's not just a Roman official, but to Theophilus, which is an audience of God lovers, God followers. But what I want to point out this morning is this, is that Luke this morning, and in his writing wants to redefine social reality. He wants to give a redefinition of social reality. And we'll see that that the question that's posed to Jesus comes out of a current understanding of one's social reality, if that makes sense. And so let's dive in. If you'll turn with me to Luke 13, verse 1. We're still in Luke 13 this week. We're moving back into the story a little bit, but, but 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 it's good. 
Luke 13, verse 1. It says, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Don't you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or Jesus continued, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Then he told this parable, as Jesus always does. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for the fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for food on the fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up this good soil? Sir, the man replied, the gardener replied, Leave it alone for just one more year and I'll, I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, then I'll cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's interesting this morning, we're presented with two groups of Galilean people, which, which, which we have no uh, account of in the Gospels. I remember reading this and thinking, what, what's with the Galileans? What's with the 18 dying? And I remember, I, I kind of went in my reference and I started referencing different scriptures and there weren't any, at least not that many, except for what you're reading that day. And so... So we have to look outside of the Gospels this morning for just a minute to understand the context of what's taking place during this uh, Pilate mixing blood with sacrifice, this whole kind of thing. It's kind of weird. So we looked at Josephus. Josephus was this Roman Jewish historian who, who wrote about history in Rome. And he was also the governor of, of Galilee. So he knows the Galilean people. But he writes about Pilate who, who had, during his 10-year reign, major uh, construction projects. And one of these projects was what was known as the aqueduct project. That There were these aqueducts that ran from this natural spring into the city, and maybe over time they corroded and they, they broke apart. And so Pilate wanted to uh, restore those, those, those aqueducts into the city. Now those aqueducts, as I said, went to the pool of, uh, of Siloam. And this was a place where people would come to to clean themselves. They would also get their, their drinking water from this pool. So this is where, this pool was directly outside uh, of the Jerusalem temple, and this is where people would come. This is kind of an important thing for the people. And so they're kind of excited about what Pilate is doing. He's providing water for them, number one. But number two, he's kind of helping their temple worship in many ways. The interesting part about this is that uh, how Pilate funded the project. Pilate was... Stealing money from the temple treasury to fund this aqueduct project. And so people became outraged that, that Pilate, this, this guy who wasn't even a religious leader, would take money out of the temple treasury to pay for this project. It looked great from the beginning, but the beginning to realize that he's stealing money from God. And so Pilate, you know, planned ahead. He knew that, that these people were going to be upset once they found out. And he knew that there would be a mob. Uh, and so the story goes like this, that, that people came to the temple, they were gathered in the temple courts where you would prepare sacrificial, you know, your lambs and everything else, uh, animal sacrifices, but they came that day angered at Pilate. And what Pilate had done is he took his soldiers and he dressed them in, in cloaks and garb that would look like the Jewish people, and then instead of carrying swords, they, 
they, they carried batons, almost like police officers carry today. And so Pilate basically said, on this signal, I want you to disperse the Jewish people. I don't want a big riot. I don't want anything, you know, to get out of control. I just want you to disperse them. Well, unfortunately, that day, the soldiers took it too far. And as they began to disperse the people, they literally beat these people and massacred these people to death right there in the temple courts. And so that's why you get this story about this question of, well, you've heard what Pilate has done, right? That he's mixed the blood of of sacrifices in the Galilean people. But then Jesus poses to the folks, this, these other 18, the 18 who, are, who, who die from this tower of Siloam. Not the pool, but now the tower. So the story goes like this, that if you look at the King James Version of this, uh, he refers to those people as sinners. So if you begin to look at the margins, you begin that they're, they're really debtors. But who are they in debt to? Well, it's believed that, that these people who are, the 18 are working on Pilate's aqueduct project, the one that's been hated now all of a sudden. And so they were receiving stolen funds from the temple to then take care of their own life. And so they were in debt to God because they were taking money that was God's to begin with. And so they believe that because of this sinfulness, they, are, they really believe that the tower has, has fallen on the people and killed all 18 of them. Interesting, interesting story, I think, for us this morning. But I want us to see this, that there's something going on in the story that I, th- I think is what we have a, a great connection. I'm going to call this the, the Galilean story of synonymous divergence. Now, let me explain. The Jews believed in this cause and effect lifestyle, that if I did something good, then Jesus would, or God would give me blessings. But if I did something bad, then I would die for it. And so they're coming to him and they're asking him, why Jesus, why would these people die and not these, you know, and, and it's kind of this question of why. But, but here's what's going on. There, there's a difference in the story that one group dies out of a righteous anger. That one group is extremely upset with what's going on in the temple, that Pilate is stealing money. And in their righteous anger, they come to the temple and then they are slaughtered by these soldiers. Now, contrast that with the other people who who then took Pilate's money for this project to fund their families, to take care of their families. They participated in the, the corruption. There was nothing holy about what was going on in their life. But as I said, this is a story of synonymous divergence. In other words, there's something in common here between the, the, the two groups. And that is this. Each group forgot who their provider was. That the Galileans who were upset about Pilate stealing money from the temple were also the ones who were excited about this project of, of restoring these aqueducts so they could get water and so they could cleanse themselves in the temple. So they were looking to, to, to Rome, to Pilate, to to take care of them, to produce the water and the life spring for them. And then you have this other group who also then took money from Pilate. So each group in some way depends on Rome for the well-being of their families and their lives. That is the problem of the story today. And that is really the question that the crowd is asking Jesus, which one is the worst sinner? But Jesus is kind of redefining, as we said, what Luke is wanting to do, Redefining a new social reality this morning. 
And that is this, that Jesus, Jesus is not necessarily concerned with the individual, but He is concerned with the overall nation of people. You see, this is what we always like to do. We always talk, like to talk about our personal sins, our personal problems, that we're sorry for what we've done. And we neglect the whole body, the whole community. And Jesus wants to say that, that in this story, I'm not worried about Pilate. I'm not worried about you, know, you as an individual. I am worried about you as a nation. That, that you are a people of God who have forgot what it means to be a people of God. And instead of looking to me for provision, instead of looking to God to provide your every need, you've looked to Rome to give it to you. And so that Jesus wants to say to his people this day that, that you must repent. Not you as an individual, we'll get to the word repent in a minute, but you, that you as a nation, you as a people need to come back to what it means to, to submit yourself to God and to God's provision alone. So there are some scholars who argue this, that, that you can't say a whole lot about individual suffering and sin. But there's a whole lot to say about national sin and suffering as a body of people. That those nations who, who buy into certain systems essentially produce a certain kind of fruit. It's a matter of what kind of fruit is being produced. Unfortunately, individuals get caught up in the whole of the nation. And Jesus wants to warn us that you can talk about individuals all you want, but but when you follow along with a nation that finds themselves in the midst of corruption, you will be a part of that overall destruction that happens. You know, we, we often talk about here in America, oh, we've got to put God back in the, the, the center of our country, which I agree with. But it's more than just prayer in school. It's more than just hanging of the Ten Commandments. It's more than just you know, I pledge allegiance and all this other stuff. One nation under God. Listen, it's more than that. I fear that, that we as a nation are headed in the wrong direction. And I think many of us are on board with the direction that it's going. I fear that we... We are a nation who, are, who really aren't going to welcome the foreigner. Now, listen, I'm, I'm not preaching politics here. I'm preaching the message of Jesus Christ this morning. God tells us clearly that we have a responsibility to the alien and the foreigner. But yet, we as God's people are voting for people who say, let's close off the walls, let's keep them out. Listen, they're a threat to our country. They're a threat to our security. It's a dangerous policy, my friends. Jesus Christ calls us as a loving people to welcome those people. You don't have to like it, but I'm just saying, a nation that is unwelcoming to the needy, the lost, and the poor is a nation that's ready for destruction. Jesus calls to this, this wonderful words of repentance. He talks to, 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 to these people this day and says, you need to repent. Now, repentance for many of us we often think about being sorry for our sins, or that we need to turn away from sin. But the interesting word that Jesus used in the Greek, metanoia, actually means to, to change your thinking. Now this is different than just turning away from sin or being sorry for something, but, 
But the word that Jesus uses is that you have to change the way you think about life and the, and the way that you see things. So it's a whole change of thinking. Now, the Greeks believed that the mind controlled the body. So if you, if you could think correctly, then your, your body would act correctly or, or rightly. And so they believe that, that, that with the mind, so goes the action. And so Jesus begins to say, as, as the people come to him, what they're wanting from Jesus when they, when they talk about the Galileans is a, is a response to the system, the political response saying, yes, let's, let's revolt against these people. We want a revolutionary. Jesus, is this who you are? Are you the guy that's going to ride in on the white horse and, and slaughter the Roman people because they've killed these Galilean people? And Jesus is saying, you, are, you have the wrong thinking, my friends. Repent. That my kingdom is not a kingdom of violence, but it's of nonviolence. That we are, we are called to be a people of peace, of shalom, that we bring about God's shalom on earth as in heaven. This is what God is calling his people to do. That we don't respond with the sword. Or as when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Jesus is warning the people today. If you live and, he said, if you, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. So he's saying in repent, Change your mind about a new social reality that is geared around God's peace. Now, I know many of you are looking at me saying, right, I know it's about God's peace, but in the world today, is that really real, Pastor? I mean, come on, get real. Is peace real in society today? I don't know. As a Christian, that's something you have to think about. I can't give you all the answers. I know for me, violence, a long time, dominated my life. And it took about four, five, six years of transformation be, before I began to realize that, that, it's, that it's God's call of nonviolence as, that, that calls us to be Christian followers of setting aside the sword, setting aside our guns, setting aside our bombs, and saying that God's forgiveness and love to our enemies will be enough. I know many of you aren't liking this this morning, but, but that's okay. This is Jesus' judgment to us. Repent. Change your thinking. So Jesus concludes with this parable. I love this. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but didn't find any. So he said to the man Take care of the, who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for the fruit on the fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Then the gardener replied, Leave it alone for just one, ye- one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, we'll leave it be. But if not, we'll cut it down. Jesus. Why does Jesus teach in parables? I mean, let's be honest. Nobody understands them. Nobody gets them. Jesus is complicated and deep, Right? But the reason Jesus teaches in parables, hear this now, is because he wants to make us think. That the parables make us think, repent, about a new social reality. And so a few thoughts about the fig tree. Number one, it takes about three years for a fig tree to produce fruit. By the fourth year, if it's not producing fruit, the chances of it ever producing fruit are next to nothing. Secondly, The fig tree represents the nation of Israel, not an individual, not the people that Jesus is talking to, but the fig tree represents a whole body of people, the nation of Israel. And so there are two alternatives to the story that I want to explore with you this morning. 
two alternatives to the parable. The first is this. Is that Jesus is the vineyard owner. And for three years, he's been, he's been looking for the fruit of repentance. For three years during his ministry, he's been going around, he's been calling people to think their, think their, or change their thinking. To think in new ways about the kingdom of God. To then act differently towards the kingdom of God. But he is finding an unrepentant people. He's finding a, a, a tree that is bearing absolutely no fruit. So Jesus, number one, is the, the vineyard owner. The, the other option is this, is that, that God is the vineyard owner. And God has been looking to the nation or the fig tree of Israel to produce fruit. And it continually produces absolutely nothing. And so God is so frustrated with the nation, he's, he's just going to say, I'm just going to destroy it, I'm going to cut it down, I'm going to throw it in the fire, it's done. But then Jesus is posed as the gardener. That he comes to God and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Give me one more year to, to fertilize this tree, to cultivate it, to love on it, to, to, to maybe give it some, some possibilities of producing new fruit. And if it doesn't after this year, then you can cut it down. Either way that you go, we end up with this, that in the story, there are second chances. That the story about the nation of Israel is that God is always given second chances. That in many ways, God is almost infinitely patient with his people. So, so we serve a God whose story is about second chances. Now, now the I could easily individualize this, and I could go down that road, and I could talk about how each of us gets second chances, but that, that's not what I want to do today. This morning, this is what I want you to know. We, God's people, the redeemed, are the standard and symbols of what it looks like to be second chances. Think about this, that, that it's not about just changing the world, but we are the images of what change looks like in the world. Did y'all catch that? We often talk about changing the world around us, but, but what if we just focused on being the images of what change looked like for our community? It's a whole different ballgame. You know, I love missions trips, but we get this mentality that we'll change the world if we go over there. Instead of working on who God has called us to be, to be image bearers to the world, that then look, look, look like what it means to be changed. So I think in many ways that we have to be a different different kind of community. If we are a community of second chances, we have to be a different kind of community that, that thinks differently. Y'all hear me now because I'm interchanging think and repent. Think and repent. Repent and think. Think and repent. That we, to be a different kind of community, have to think differently. So this morning, I, I wrote down four, four different kind of communities. I don't know if I'm going to get to all of them. But, but the first is this, Joliet, I'm talking to us now, as a people. That we have to be a forward-thinking kind of community. Now, hear me when I say this. I love traditional tradition, but I hate traditionalism. There's a difference. A great scholar once said this, that Tradition is the living faith of the dead, and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I'm for any tradition, hear me when I say this, that I'm for any tradition that moves us toward the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. 
If it has nothing to do with resurrection, then it's just traditionalism. So my fear is that we've become a people who are who are really bound up in traditionalism rather than tradition. And I think that we have to begin to work, Julie, at first. If we want to begin to reach new people, we have to be a forward-thinking people that, that deals with the tension of, of using the depth of, of tradition, not traditionalism, but also uh, embracing creativity. Here's what I mean. Just a wonderful example. Last week, when Jeannie said, uh, we're going to sing a hymn this morning, many of you erupted in applause and, you know, loud hoo-hoo. And then she said, but we're going to sing it in a new way. And others were like, ugh. Listen this morning. The hymn, full of depth and meaning, beautiful words. Is it about the words and the meaning, or is it about, is it about the hymn itself? That we sing hymns at this church. Now, if you could take that, if you could take tradition, the things that are important to the church over a course of history, and then embrace them and, and, and do new things with them. Imagine that what could happen. I think about that, that God, when he creates in the beginning, we look at the world around us and we see that he is a creative God. And then I think about the power of the resurrection of Christ. And if, if the power of Christ, uh, if the resurrection can bring somebody back to life, imagine the same kind of power that's in each of us today. That we, as God's people, are are given the same power in the Spirit to be creative people. And so as a forward-thinking people, what I mean is this. I'm going to use one of my favorite guys. His name is Brian Zahn. He talks about uh, uh, engaging orthodoxy. That we take the, the richness of the past and we bring beauty to it in a new way that speaks to people who don't yet know who Christ is. The other way that we're forward-thinking is that, that we as a church begin to think about other people and reach out to people that many other churches, quite honestly, aren't willing to reach out to. This week, I had a wonderful opportunity to teach our, our Bible study on Wednesday morning. We were discovering the first chapter of Jonah, which if you know anything about Jonah in the first chapter, this guy just blatantly tells God, get away from me. So somebody posed this question to me. They asked, why was Jonah so upset with the Assyrians or the Ninevites? And I said, well, think about it. The Assyrians were the empirical people. These were a killing machine kind of people. If somebody were to come here today, occupy our country, you'd be upset too, right? You'd hate them as well. So Jonah has a deep hatred for these people because, because of the way that they were treated by the Assyrians. And so then I posed this question to our group on Wednesday morning. I said, who are the Ninevites in our community? Boy, I tell you what, answers started popping up. It didn't take long. The Muslims, right? Atheists, LGBTQ community. Uh, we, who, are, who, are the, who are the Ninevites? We talked about sex offenders. We talked about murders. We talked about all these different kinds. Some even said, some of us in the church. I like that answer. But here's the reality of, are we really a people who are prepared to embrace those kind of people? Do we really believe that God's salvation is for the Muslim, the gay, the, the, the sex offender? I mean, is God's salvation for those people? The illegal aliens? I don't know. I'm asking the question. But this is what Jonah's running from. 
He believes that God's salvation is not good for these people. And so he goes in a, to the ends of the earth. That's literally what it means. He's going to the ends of the earth to get away from these people and to get away from God's message of hope. And so I said to them on Wednesday morning, I said, what would it look like to be less of Jonah and more like Jesus? What would our lives look like if we looked more like Jesus and less of Jonah? I don't know. I, I have hopes one day that one day these pews will be filled with, with those very people that we mentioned. And that we as a church would, would learn to embrace them and love them. And we often say this, you know, we have to love them, but we don't have to accept, we don't have to accept their lifestyle. <laughs> but often, one trumps the other, and it's not love. Our reaction to that is usually not love. It's one of hatred. So I'm, I'm beginning to think what a forward-thinking community looks like. The other one is this, is a symbolic community. I've got a few minutes left. A symbolic community. Now, you may not agree with me on this, but the church and its people are, are moving into a place of exile. And you're saying, well, well Pastor, we're, we're, our heads aren't being cut off. We aren't being persecuted for our religion. We don't have somebody, you know, uh, enslaving us. But, but one scholar says this, that exile is a social displacement liturgically and symbolically. It's a social displacement liturgically and symbolically. Now hear me when I say this. It is the goal of culture today to shatter the existing paradigms of meaning and symbolism of the covenant that exists between God and God's people. Do you hear what I'm saying there? That, that it's the culture's goal to destroy the symbols of Jesus Christ and the covenant that exists between Him and His people. And so as a symbolic community, I, I once again think we need to become a community that reflects back to the world God's glory. That we need to become images of Christ to the world. As we said earlier, that we're not just about changing the world, but we're the images of what change and redemption and second chances look like to the world. I think we need to be an investing community. Interesting in the parable that the tree only takes from the soil but actually produces nothing. Hear me when I say this. There are people in this life who take more than they put in. And there are people in this life who put in more than they take out. The same is true for the church. Are we going to be an investing people? The natural posture for the church is for it to grow in on itself. And we're concerned with our only our needs and nobody else's outside of ours. That is, that is what we get concerned with. And so we're taking everything for us, but we don't want anything for anybody else. This is a problem. So what would it look like if we began to invest? And we're going to talk about this more next week. But if we began to invest in our community and people who needed the, the most help, that second chances were not just for people who are sitting in the pews on this morning, but rather for the people who aren't. How would we invest in them if we gave our gifts, our time, our money, everything that we have to these folks, teaching them, helping them, loving them, caring for them? What kind of community would we have among us? Lastly is the 
community of hope. I'm going to be reading quickly from N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope. I love what he says here. If God is, is making all things new in the end, what does it mean to be a new creation? He says, every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and the delight and the beauty of His creation, every minute spent teaching, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human being and non-human creatures, every prayer, all spiritual teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel and builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrection power of God in the new creation that God will one day make. Do you hear what he's saying? That every aspect of our lives somehow manifests itself in the restoration of God's world. Folks, I believe in a God that, that, that teaches us that one day God will come down to dwell among His people on earth. And that He will restore all things and make them new. And I believe that every, every act that we have in our life somehow will be manifest in that new world. Now you're saying, what do, what do you mean by that, Pastor? What I mean is this, is that I think as a youth pastor, I rarely ever saw the fruits of our ministry. And often it was defeating. Here we're investing so much of our lives into these kids, and rarely do we see any fruit being produced. But my father would always, my father-in-law would always say to me that this is not about what's happening now, but, but think about in the future when these kids become doctors, others of them youth pastors and pastors, when they become teachers and people who invest in the lives of other people. And because you have shaped their lives, you have helped shape their life into the Christ, into the person that Christ has called them to be. Think about the fruit that's being produced in that alone. That always gives me hope. And I think someday, when we, we find ourselves in God's new creation, I will see the fruit that has been produced, not just of my ministry, but of their ministries as well. Think about all the lives that will be changed just from one person. This is the logic of hope this morning. This is the mission of God. This is the kingdom of God for us this morning. And this is what the power of resurrection looks like in the face of exile. So this morning, I, I think that for us to be a community of hope, we have to be a forward-thinking community. We have to be a symbolic community. We have to be an investing community. And we really have to be a community of second chances that believes that God can do anything, that he can work miracles in the life of anyone. I believe in that God this morning. I believe. Jeannie, will you lead us this morning? Will you please stand and join me as we say our closing prayer together? Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. 
Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Have a good day.